0: Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that explains how to put tab B into slot A. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Tom Gerhardt and Dan Provost are the folks behind Studio Neat, a three-year-old industrial design and software firm that started with an almost accidental bang on Kickstarter, and several projects later, they've shown they're no flash in the pan. We'll talk about crowdfunding, inspiration, and design. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, for, hey, having thanks for having us. It, it's fun to talk to you. We've talked, I think, like every six months for the last three years. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. So We've something interesting going on. And I know the, the first time we talked, I was just starting to cover crowdfunding for The Economist. And I'd written a piece, I think I talked to you after this, uh, that had come out in print. And it was right when Kickstarter was starting to accelerate. And you guys had created the glyph which was one of the early big successes and you know as i've gone on with this series i've wound up almost accidentally talking to several of the people who had really early big successes like Lumi, where the amount of money now seems very small you know the tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars but you guys were one of the first uh what were you doing when you uh, you know for, well, actually tell me what the glyph is and what were you doing when you guys developed the product design so uh the glyph is uh, just a simple piece of plastic and it's
1: a tripod mount and stand for the iPhone so you know the iPhone has a great camera so you can use it to mount it to a tripod and then it also has a little lip on it so you can use it like a little easel to prop your phone up if you know watching a movie on the plane or or whatever. So Tom and I were both working Uh, As designers, prior to launching that Kickstarter project, we had just graduated from grad school in New York, and so we were working just at various studios, and then we had this idea and uh, just kind of started working on it as a side project, basically.
2: Yeah, we were actually living in the same building, so it was very easy, like, you know, after work, be like, oh, hey, I did some sketches <laughs> today, you know, check this out. It was all very uh, simple, and, you know, we we had been friends for a while, um, and so we just kind of fell into this idea. We actually, have we have the text that, like, Dan sent me at work one day, like, hey, I got this idea. So, but yeah, we just worked on it for, I don't know, Dan, like a month or so or six weeks. Yeah, something like that. And then... And, you know, we finally kind of arrived at something after we'd done some 3D prints. You know, went through, I don't know, like six or ten rounds of 3D prints from Shapeways. Arrived at something we thought was
0: cool, and then we're like, okay, now what do we do? (laughs) Well, and it was, uh, so you looked to raise $10,000 and make, I think, what was it, like a a few hundred of these at the time. And in the end, you raised almost $140,000.
2: Yeah, exactly. We thought... You know, because the 3D prints actually worked pretty well. And so we're like, you know, maybe, you know, we can just sell these 3D prints to people. And then we realized, you know, we did a little bit of research and figured out that we would need to injection mold them with uh, with kind of this rubber to make them like really nice and what we wanted. But, you know, at the time we were like, oh, we got some kind of quotes from places and figured out it was going to cost $10,000 to do that. So we we're like, okay, well, maybe we can just eke it out we'll make a couple hundred send it to people uh, and then just see what happens we weren't thinking oh let's make a business we were more thinking oh let's just make this thing and then all of a sudden it went crazy
0: so <laughs> <laughs> well right you got into the scale that was so far and you know you were one of the early uh, folks who um, hit that scale thing because instead of i don't know like 500 or 1000 you had to fulfill what in the end it was over 5000 units wasn't it mm mm-hmm. mhm that's, and that's correct. And the scale. I learned a lot talking to you guys then because I didn't know much about injection molding or the scaling. And you had first contracted with, a, or you were going to work with a firm that could do short run injection molding, which wasn't a new thing, but they, the tooling costs and the setup costs weren't as high, right? But then when you hit this scale, what do you, what do you do when you suddenly said, "Hey, I'm going to make five thousand of something. I thought I was going to make five hundred of." Well, the
2: first thing we realized, which which is really. Great that we realized this was that we would not be able to send them, like pack and fulfill them ourselves and oh, send them yeah. to people. Cause we, <laughs> cause in the part of the Gulf campaign, we had this thing where if you pay, if, if you do the $50 tier, you get a 3D printed prototype. And we had about 500 people get that. Um, and so we kind of fulfilled them ourselves that like those. And with the international shipping and like all this stuff, we're just like, man, we cannot do this. So early on, we realized all the fulfillment stuff we would have to outsource. And then we just got really lucky and we hooked up with a manufacturer in South Dakota that understood kind of like our situation or were willing to kind of help us through some of the design tweaks we had to make to get this thing to where it was injection moldable. Because we, we, we it was designed where it would mostly work, but there was definitely some kind of learning we had to do. And so we just, I mean, the, the pieces fell into place. We got really lucky and we amazingly... Fulfilled on time in just like I don't <laughs> know, like three months, which is you know crazy.
0: But you sort of you didn't. I don't. Did you quit your you didn't quit your day jobs and either you were still working and running the Kickstarter campaign that's going out of control and getting ramped up and then fulfilling all while still working full time jobs until the end of that. Right. So we didn't end up quitting our
1: full time jobs until April of the next year. So it was about six months of kind of doing both simultaneously.
0: That's great. You know, and a glyph has been cited, I think, a lot because it was this great combination of things. It was crowdfunding, 3D printing, the accessibility of 3D design tools to everyone. And I mean, I know you guys had training, but this was your first product you were launching on your own, that issue of scale. Like there were all these great elements of the story. And okay, so that's, you know, 2010, but we're almost three years uh, later now. Really, we're two and a half years, I guess, after the end of that campaign or, or almost well, yes, we're three years right after the end of the campaign. And you've got a company now. I mean, there's this path that goes from uh, having a single product and a success. And people say, great, now what's your next move? And now you have multiple products, multiple things, and you've gone through you know, multiple Kickstarter campaigns, development cycles. This is a pretty fascinating journey over a short period of time. Most people take a little longer to get here, I think.
2: Yeah, well, you know, we, uh, it's, it's kind of crazy uh, when you think about it. I still don't believe it. But I think, you know, we, yeah, we had that great kind of, you know, I mean, Kickstarter worked basically, right? I mean, our business was kickstarted because of the backers we had and then the product. And then I think, you know, we just had another idea almost right away for the Cosmonaut, uh, which was our second Kickstarter campaign. And because that one, I think, was a success as well, it really kind of, we went from zero to 60 really fast.
0: Because you did that. That was an iPad, like a what con- a capacitive, conductive uh, stylus. But it was one of the first. There were only a handful. The iPad had only come out um, the previous year, I think, right? Or not even that. Yeah, the previous year. And there were a handful of these styli, styli and yours was one of the, the first. And the design was also unique, as I recall.
1: Yeah, so basically the design thinking behind the Cosmonaut is – treating a stylus like a dry erase marker so Mm -hmm. we had had this idea that you know we'd use other styluses uh, or styli for the ipad and um they never felt quite right um because they tried to mimic the uh the feeling of a pen or a pencil and so we kind of came to this realization that it feels like you're writing on a whiteboard whenever you're using an ipad so we try to design a stylus that kind of match that cognitive mapping of, oh, this is a fat marker. So it's going to feel kind of low fidelity. And so that's kind of where the design thinking came from
0: and at the same time you had the issue that your original product uh, didn't work with the iPhone 5 when it came out and uh, the form factors changed so you're suddenly going from one thing that you'd made large quantities of I mean I understand injection molding you can make very large quantities of so you had one simple thing that was a, a piece of plastic with a metal boss in it that could be assembled on you know by people shipped out and so forth then you need multiples of those I know now you have a, uh kind of a product matrix for the glyph you know depending on the camera whether you want the kickstand or the uh, extra part to lock it in the glyph plus cosmonaut's a little different too because it's got metal parts and plastic parts it, it does it start to get challenging to manage all of this at once wh- while you're still a relatively new company and and just starting up
2: yeah it's it's uh a lot of work it's funny you know we uh, when we originally launched the cosmonaut we had it kind of has a little end accent piece in the back and originally we launched with like a cherry wood accent and then a kind of a, a glass bead blasted aluminum accent but we decided to drop that after about six months just because it's you know the complexity of keeping that skews or having a number of skews in stock like balanced across the you know three warehouses we had Oh my um, gosh! It's so, a real it's a real pain. So even with
0: this many products, that's the thing. Uh, and uh, for listeners, a SKU. I'll put this in the show notes. Stock keeping unit. That's like the basic thing. There's a UPC code assigned to it. And it's the thing that lets us uh, someone scan, and it's how you track your own stuff. But it's how a retail merchant would track it as well. Yeah. But you have three warehouses already. You've only, you've got essentially one product with multiple versions, and the Cosmonaut, and you've got stuff in three warehouses.
2: Yeah, it's you know it's a, it, it's amazing uh, and this really speaks to so you know obviously Kickstarter has kind of enabled us to do this but really a lot of the back end stuff like sh- we use Shopify, a company called Shopify for e-commerce and then Shipwire does our fulfillment and you know Shipwire has warehouses in uh, you know a couple in the United States some in Canada some in Europe uh, oh. one in China mm-hmm. and so It's really easy for us. We just kind of send our stock wherever, and then they hook into our Shopify backend. And so, if we get an order from, you know, uh, Russia or southern Germany, it will ship from our UK warehouse for just a couple bucks and get to the person in a couple days. And so, we can really be kind of a global reaching company with global reaching. Distribution really easily and be really small. So I, th- I think that's a kind of another key to our success, which is kind of quiet and hidden away. But really, those tools of having those kind of back-end services are, like, I would say, almost just as important to us as, like, a Kickstarter.
0: Oh, I'm fascinated by that because that is part of the theme of this show, but it's that you're linking together... Things that already exist. You didn't have to build an e-commerce system. You have to build. You don't. You're not shipping out of your office. You know. I've talked to uh, Outgrow.me uh, in Brooklyn. That's that's. Uh, I don't. I works with them. I forgot. Do they sell your products? I'm not sure, Dan. Do you? Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure either. Not well, sure. that's interesting. Well, they so they've uh, have set up as kind of a. a crowdfunded post-supply company. So if you know something, something that's had a crowdfunding project, it's often hard to figure out where you buy it. You go to Kickstarter, Ah. it doesn't say. So it's an interesting idea and they've grown Crazily fast, uh, and they have a warehouse and people working for them, and they're now aggregating stuff into a distribution channel into retail stores because people want this stuff. I mean, you guys have uh, you've got a company site, and if I search for Cosmonaut or Glyph or you know iPod, or iPad, uh, uh, iPhone, I don't even know, I don't even know what Apple makes anymore. An iPhone <laughs> uh, tripod mount. I'll find it on Google, it'll take me to your site. But a lot of the products that people have liked, it's hard to find. Designers are still fulfilling you know, out of their offices. Yeah. They may have thousands of units and they're stuck in a warehouse, they bring them in, it's a whole deal. So you've stepped outside that. You started at a level that was already too big to fulfill with your first product. You had to find a solution even at that point so you weren't doing your own shipping.
2: Yeah, I mean I think we could have and still could do it in-house, You know, but it would just mean – we're hiring people and managing those people uh it would you know it would be cheaper for us like we'd end up making more money probably in the long run. but you know Dan and I want to spend our time being designers and focusing on products, and so we've made the dec- a very conscious decision to uh outsource as much of the kind of non design stuff as we can, so even if that means you know less margins for us um, that's what we've chosen to do and it's nice because you know honestly we could probably grow 10 X in terms of revenue and the products we sell and still be doing the same thing. Um, and so that's exciting
0: oh, that's great. You don't have to scale up. So you wouldn't need to take things. And I've had this conversation on on every product podcast is as as you go and scale and you go, as you guys did, well, we could do these 3D printing. Okay, it's more than that. Now we need to go to small run injection molding. Now we go to high run injection molding. And then there's steps, I know, even above that. That seems like the discussion you guys have had too is as you scale up, you're still within the range where you can keep doing what you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And uh, yeah, that's that's the way we like it. And that's and – I've talked about staffing before too is if you needed three people to make something happen, you really need five people because people are sick and on vacation and they quit and you have to train new people and suddenly you need a manager for those five people. And then suddenly you start getting to a point, oh, you have to have mandatory health care or whatever, these things that you have a certain number of employees. You have to meet certain governmental regulations and suddenly you've got 20 people and you're never designing products.
2: Yeah, I mean I've – so I, and I've worked for – I used to work for a firm called Potion in New York and they started as two guys – and then when I came in, there were five people. And then when I left, there's 12. Mm-hmm. And going through a couple of those experiences and talking to other people, there doesn't seem to be a really nice way to have a small company that's more, that has employees, if that makes sense. So you get in this awkward phase where you kind of have to start growing and it's hard to stop growing once you start. And so Dan and I have been really kind of conscious about trying to stay just us. Because we don't – we won't get into this situation where we have three employees and then we have to release a product because of like revenue or business pressure that we don't really believe in. And mm-hmm. so it's a way for us to kind of stay really lean so that we can uh, have as much control as we as we want.
1: I was just going to say I had an old uh, a game design teacher in grad school who had a small company. And I remember him saying the moment you hire your first employee, everything changes. And so I've kind of taken that to heart and that just, you know, you're responsible for another human being's livelihood. And so it affects your (laughs) decision making and it it kind of affects everything. So I think the fact that we've been able to stay, you know, just the two of us has been really nice and, and pretty important, I think.
0: And that would have been difficult in any previous era, even if you could have done the crowdfunding part, like having all the other pieces. I I know there, I mean, there's always been mail order fulfillment houses and drop shipping and, you know, UPS has logistics systems and whatever, and those date back years. But the simplicity for a company your size, do you think that would have been around? I mean, 2010, when you were looking around, did you have as many options as you have today, for instance?
2: No, I mean, not that, we weren't really looking around, but I would bet not, um, because, you know, the companies that we use for fulfillment, I know are new, and they were coming, they are kind of birthing right around when we were, and so, and we, we could have been able to do it maybe, but definitely probably not as quickly and not as smoothly.
0: So, yeah, we, we're good timing. It's all about really good timing. <laughs> you know, what I've been watching for is I feel like there's an ecosystem for crowdfunding, especially with products. I mean, less so with other categories, you know, film a film, you know, when you make a film, you're making a company. <laughs> it's, it's a small company to make a film, and it and it often dissolves when the film is over. But when you're making uh, and software is a different kind of animal too, and so forth. But when you need to make and fulfill actual products, I, I feel like I'm starting to see the pieces. I, one of the of a podcast that uh, will have aired just before this one with uh, Holly from uh, Topotico, They're doing that for the cartooning world, the web comics world, and cartoonists, where they're now helping plan, produce, and fulfill. Fill an entire Kickstarter campaign. So the cartoonist is still deeply involved, but they don't have to master these skills they don't have. It feels like there's a business that could be there for, for the kind of thing you do. You guys now have the experience, and you did something to help other people in the same boat so that they wouldn't have to recapitulate everything that you learned in this process. You wrote a book. And, you know, that's not a departure for you guys, exactly, because you've been documenting your process all along. But it will be exhilarating. Great title. What was your intent with putting out a book about how you had figured out to make this process work? I mean, I think it was just to kind
1: of, you know, share and give back in the same way that we uh, absorbed all these things from other people so i I remember specifically Craig Maud, who was uh previously on the show uh, <laughs> Great car, yeah. uh, he, he uh He wrote a blog post a- after his Kickstarter campaign, which yes. preceded ours by I think six months and it was so helpful just to to learn everything you know he went through. And, uh, you know, tips and um, just, you know, how to run a smooth campaign. So that was so helpful that we kind of wanted to do the same thing. But, you know, our our product was a little different and our experience was different. So we thought, you know, we had something to offer in terms of just helping other people do the same thing. And what's nice about this environment and this kind of zeitgeist is there's no harm in... (laughs) giving advice to people like telling people how to run a successful campaign is not harmful to our business in any way so it's just kind of a nice atmosphere to be in
0: let's pause to thank a sponsor An event apart, a design conference developed and run by Jeffrey Zeldman and Eric Meyer is the preeminent event for people who make websites. The conference is jam-packed with information that you can put directly to use. Your head will be crammed full of new ideas after every session. I know mine was after I attended one in Seattle. Jeffrey and Eric pull together 12 of the leading minds in web design, plus their own expertise, for two days of nonstop inspiration and enlightenment. They also have an optional add on workshop on multi device web design, which every practicing designer today needs to be able to navigate their way through. Upcoming events are in San Diego, Boston, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Austin, and San Francisco. If you care about code as well as content, usability as well as design, An Event Apart is the conference you've been waiting for. Go to aneventapart.com slash newdisruptors to sign up. And now back to our podcast. This is what I hear from most of the people who have been successful at crowdfunding is their their thing after they do their project and get it fulfilled is they turn around and start advising other people on how to do it too, (laughs) which is wonderful. There's the folks at at Lumi, uh, Jesse and uh, Stefan there. uh, Jesse does um, Skillshare classes on it Mm -hmm. and they're very, very active in saying, look, this is something because as you say, no one's going to come out on Kickstarter or Indiegogo with a Glyph competitor. It wouldn't fly because the glyph already exists. It's hard to take something that exists and do a duplicate. So, whatever anyone's going to do, it seems like you're advising people how to fulfill their particular ambition. It's not a recipe for duplicating your precise product or success.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's so awesome. You know, we get email all the time from people. And it was, it was also partly why we wrote the book because we kept, you know, getting questions and we we're like, let's just put this somewhere where we can point people to. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's just awesome the email you get from people who, you know, are super pumped about their project. You know, you give them just a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of advice, and they're, you know, going off and doing great things. So it's it's really great to be in a position where, you know, we've been there kind of
0: once before and we can be like, don't worry, it'll, it'll be okay. Like, just go for it. Well, since you wrote the book on it and you've lived it, what should people do if they have an idea? How do you get started down the track to turn an idea into something that is actually manufacturable and saleable? That's a, that's a tough way. How do you get started? Yeah. Is a tough. Actually doing it is easier than how do you get started, right?
1: Yeah, I think it's just, um, I mean, the thing we kind of bang on the head over and over again is just, you know, if the passion is there and the excitement is there, then hopefully everything will fall into place. And may, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be successful or it's going to work out. But as long as you're having a fun time working on it and, you know, enjoying doing it, then hopefully these other things will kind of fall into place. So really it shouldn't, I don't know if this is the right way to say this, but it the getting started part, is kind of the exciting part, mm. um, and so uh, hopefully that just kind of is inherent in and in, you know what you're doing.
0: So it's the falling in love versus marriage, and marriage is making the (laughs) marriage making the company work. You're you're giddy with success, and then there's hard work to make the marriage go on. But but it's uh, uh, that's the long term commitment, and that's you know studio need is your marriage, right? Is that you pull that off? But you know I wonder because I think um, I keep watching more and more tools and teachings show up. Uh, I talked to the folks at a local makerspace called Maker House that opened in Seattle a few months ago now. And uh, part of their thing is they are trying to create a community and teach people. Are you seeing more of that, that people are reaching out and saying, we are trying to lift all boats. We want to have cottage industries. So we've, I mean, not just in the Kickstarter side, but on like 3d design or product development, all the things that you guys have learned, are you seeing more like collaborative assistance from people in a community that's already made stuff out to people who are trying to get started? i have sure. I'm sure that
2: that's happening, you know, at grad schools like design and technology grad schools and MFA programs around the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, But, you know, I see some of that. We see some of that in like some of the services, you know, we use like, you know, Shopify is really good at kind of having teaching and giving advice and having competitions. So is like Shapeways, the, the, the 3D printing website. So everywhere, like every kind of service we use is definitely, they understand that, you know, if we teach this like huge amount of makers, you know, how to use our stuff or, you know, give them advice, then, you know, it will lift all boats and it's great for everyone. I can't think of any group that is local to us that is kind of specifically focusing on like, you know, product development or business development, but I'm sure they
0: exist because this is so zeitgeist that, I mean, well, I feel like all the pieces are coming together. And I know, yeah. I mean, the amount of amount and variety of 3D design software is crazy right now. There are so many packages and the stuff ranges from free and excellent to, you know, $5,000 a seat and fantastic. But um, there just seems to be so many companies trying to get people to to use the software. They're, they're writing the software because there's demand, but then they need to go out there and evangelize so people will actually pick it up and start to work with it.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's just going to get easier. I mean, You know, Google SketchUp obviously is kind of the uh, marquee figure for that sort of, you know, easy to use 3D design. Uh, Unfortunately, you probably couldn't take something made in SketchUp and have kind of a product made from it. Um, It's not quite there. But yeah, I mean, I, I would not be surprised in the least if a piece of Mac software came out, you know, in the next year that did... Solid body modeling Ooh. that was really easy to use, that was kind of like Google SketchUp that enabled people to make awesome 3D prints. I mean, I'm sure that's coming. It's got to. You know, with things like the Makerbot becoming so easy and ubiquitous, it's gonna be it's gonna be crazy.
0: <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out how how big a trend that is, if people are gonna have MakerBots in their houses or not. But it seems like a lot of small businesses will wind up having something because there's always something you could print out in three dimensions that will be useful for visualization. And a lot of businesses where, you know, either they need it to show a client something to design something or maybe even as a replacement part as um, ceramics and metals become more typical in in lower end devices. I could see, you know, you're you're a HVAC company and you have a deal and you print out a part in your office that then gets shipped to you, you know, a few days later, but you don't have a FedEx shipping for it while you put it into the customer's machine.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think so. I mean, it's kind of crazy. We we have a MakerBot uh, in our studio and, you know, it's like $2,000 and, that's just kind of silly that it's that cheap.
0: <laughs> and you use it all the time. Are you constantly printing stuff out of that thing?
2: Yeah, and it, it, it's also because not only is the machine cheap, but the material is really cheap. So oh, you know, and it's
0: getting cheaper, isn't it? I keep hearing about new yeah. s- new uh, filament material that's going to be even like ridiculously cheap compared to the stuff now, which is not that expensive.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, we can really now just have a casual idea and I can go through and model five or six iterations of it in a couple hours, whereas before that meant you know, modeling it, sending it to Shapeways, waiting a week, 10 days, it coming back, then changing it. So it just kind of really ramps up our design process and it lets us be really kind of flippant and carefree about just (laughs) trying things. And and that's actually really nice uh, because sometimes you stumble on things that you wouldn't have otherwise, you know?
0: Well, that was the laser writer's innov- innovation, right? Is that designers, I, I come, I date back from, you know, pr- to paste up days, pre-desktop publishing, and you want to try something great. You get it in the typesetting machine, you print it out, you expose the rosin-coated paper, you dry it, you <laughs> wax it, you get out your x knives, this whole thing. And then it's like, oh, okay, I can hit this button, and maybe 30 seconds to 60 seconds later, it comes out, and now I just got a new $100 HP printer like the bottom of the line thing and it's like you know and a (laughs) four dollar thing comes out that's better than anything you know human on the planet had 20 years ago i you know one of the themes of this podcast i feel like i should have a bell that rings is is iteration and you were just hitting upon that how important is iteration and trying things to your design process i i mean personally
1: i think it's it's the thing (laughs) if if, if there's not iteration happening then there's not a design process happening so that's just how we work is you get an idea and then you just try to make it as quickly as you can and then just keep iterating that idea so that's kind of what we've done from the beginning and that is not unique to designers
2: yeah and you know it's funny uh, we get questions all the time because we've kind of put our toes into some different. So many different medias, um, and you know, Dan and I have have zero formal industrial design training. We <laughs> we both uh, started out as like architecture for undergrad, and then went to like design and technology programs, and that's just where we learned a design process, basically. And so, you know, people ask us, you know how how did you do the learn how to make products, or how did you learn how to write software, and or graphic design, and really, it just comes down to you know, we've learned how to take this approach to solving problems, which is basically, you know, have the confidence to just try something and then look at it with like clear eyes and then see what you need to change and just keep going over and over again. So, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Dan. I mean, that's what we do all day is we just iterate. And we like look at stuff a little bit sideways and go, mm, I don't know what to think <laughs> about that. Or, mm, you know, we argue about, you know, typefaces and stuff. Uh, but that's really all we do. It's just like a bunch of looking at stuff and tweaking it.
0: Well, I should point out you guys have just added another level of complexity to your operations. You're now on opposite sides of the country just about. So you have a more virtual office, right? You have work- You were working side by side in New York for a long time. And so, Dan, you've moved to Austin, right? Yes, that's excellent. So Austin, great city. Um, and now you're going to be what, like 2,000 miles apart. How does that change the collaboration for you guys?
1: It actually hasn't changed it that much because we're pretty used to this way of working. So when Tom and I designed uh, the glyph, we were, like Tom mentioned, living just four floors apart from each other in the same building in New York. But then he ended up moving to North Carolina about six months later, I think. Mm. Um, so we kind of had to get used to this idea of kind of working remotely. And we found that we actually really like it because we have, you know, daily meetings over FaceTime in the morning, and then we're kind of have our own space to do our own thing with, you know, check-ins throughout the day if needed. So I've, I we we have this theory that if we were, you know, together in the same space, we would just, you know – get (laughs) just get distracted and you know play video Video games games. all day or whatever (laughs) uh so i think it it's been nice kind of from a discipline uh perspective and kind of a focus perspective and then you know when we get together just visiting or for these things like wwdc and stuff those kind of infrequent in-person meetups are really useful and energizing as well so i think we've we've been able to strike a, a pretty
2: good balance
0: Oh, that's great. You've had the experience. With it. You, were you in Raleigh for a bit?
2: Yeah, well, I was actually in Durham um, for about a year, and then I actually moved back to New York, and we were both in New York for a while together, but we decided that we liked being kind of apart <laughs> so much, we just like both worked out of our like home offices. And so, yeah, really, it's been almost like zero transition, Dan, moving to Austin oh, a couple funny. months ago. So really, uh, the
0: big problem is you can't get together for beer at the end of the day, but besides that, you're still right. working the way yeah. you were.
2: Or making videos. I mean, that's the other thing is, oh, yeah. you know, we making videos is trickier. But, you know, it's a plain right away, not too, not too big of a deal. It,
0: uh, you mentioned uh, Macworld, and I know, um, you know, a lot of companies, there's issues about, like, what conferences you go to and how you reach out with what you're doing, and there's can be a lot of expense involved with that. Is that Macworld I know? I mean, that's, you know, the Mecca for Mac people. I've gone almost every year for the last 15. I missed a couple recently. But uh, it's the place where if you're trying to reach that segment of the audience. So it's proved useful for you to get out in person, in front of people? And, and do you get feedback and get bring back knowledge from that, not just um, push product out on the show floor?
1: We do, yeah. I would say that's definitely one of the benefits is, you know, interacting with customers face-to-face, and we do get feedback. So Tom, again, mentioned earlier how we discontinued the Cherry end-cap version of the Cosmonaut, and part of the thinking of that was feedback we got uh, at Macworld. We had that product there, and we had both versions and we would ask people which version they wanted. And when we explained to them that there was no functional difference between the two, it became very clear that they did not care at all oh. what, <laughs> what the uh, end cap looked like. So, <laughs> so your,
0: your designer preciousness, you said, oh, okay, we're going to lose the preciousness. Yes, stuff. a little bit. Yeah,
1: <laughs> so, that, so things like that, we've been able to kind of learn from uh, these, these in-person interactions.
0: Well, and I know here's so there's a the third part of your business too, or third part of what you guys spend doing, time doing. So you've got the product, you know, actual hard physical products you sell. You've got the the book, which I know doesn't occupy your time now, but that's something that you that you sell and offer in that kind of advice and and background. And then there's software, and I mean that ties in neatly, of course, with MacWorld because you've released a couple of iOS apps. I'm very curious about this because you guys aren't programmers either, right? You're not industrial designers. You're not programmers. You weren't authors. You've done all three, three things. What's how did you come into the software part cuz that's a specialized area although you know obviously very interesting to draw you into it
1: so the software actually is what we were doing uh for our full-time jobs before starting oh. Studio <laughs> Neat so it's actually what we should be doing uh professionally so I I was working as an interaction designer and Tom was a software engineer so Oh
0: you were a programmer I didn't right yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So you got sidetracked by this the, the success of actual physical goods in from your your actual focus on the electronic stuff.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, we both always kind of done physical stuff too, but but more kind of casually uh, and definitely not kind of industry facing. Um but yeah, we're we're really tooled up to really be doing software, uh not <laughs> hardware. But uh you know, for us it's really great to shift back and forth between software and hardware because you know, in the software world, you have so much control, almost infinite control. And, you know, you can kind of bend things to your will. But, you know, in the hardware space, it's like you almost have no control. And it takes a really long time over like what you can do. And so being able to shift back and forth, like if we're really frustrated, like with the Cosmonaut, you know, we had all these material engineering challenges. And they're challenges that we can't necessarily solve. And if we try to get help doing them, it takes like, you know, six weeks to get an answer. Uh, Whereas the software, it's like, oh, you know, let's just make it so. And so it was really nice to be able to switch back and forth. So, yeah, we we, we keep on planning to make both hardware and
0: software just because, you know, we like it. Well, I like the fact that you, you've tried two different things too. You've got Framographer, uh, a stop-motion time-lapse app, and then you've also got, you have, I think what I was before the podcast saying, this is like a pop-up software, like a pop-up store, simple bracket, which was for the NCAA uh, uh, brackets and and playoffs. And that existed for a short period of time. And you use crowdfunding on that. But Framographer is more of a conventional sales thing. You developed it and released it. What are the two approaches there? I know software is a funny thing when it comes to crowdfunding.
1: Right. So uh, Framographer, which was our, our first app, we liked the idea of our previous two products had been the Glyph and Cosmonaut. And both of them had been you know, crowdfunded. So we like the idea of A, working on a piece of software for something new, but B, releasing something kind of the Apple way and that it doesn't exist. And then one day, hey, this exists and nobody (laughs) knew about it before. And and now there's this thing you can buy. So we were interested in trying to release something that way since we hadn't before. And then Simple Bracket was different because it was such a unique thing tied to a specific time period the, yeah. the ncaa tournament so we needed to have a way to uh kind of get people on board for it so we wouldn't miss the window there was this hard deadline that we couldn't change because the tournament was going to happen with or without us what was the uh, chicken
0: and egg there though how much design did you do before you committed to the kickstarter was it entirely done and then you said let's see if there's enough uh interest in order to actually release it Right, so it was
1: mostly done. I would say maybe it it was functional, and I would say kind of like ninety percent done. And there was just a lot of polish that needed to happen during the campaign. But we were at a point where we were confident that we would be able to release it in time. So that's that's where we felt we needed to get prior to doing the Kickstarter. If it was just like uh, we were making a game or an app and something, then. Or something, that it would have been way less developed. But this, since this thing had a very specific hard deadline that we couldn't miss, we uh, felt we needed to be, you know, much more prepared.
0: Let's pause to talk about beauty and our sponsor. The folks at Fracture have figured out this fantastic process to take your digital photos and make gorgeous, large size, permanent prints that you can hang on a wall. They print onto glass using a Swiss-made output device that can put light, fast, permanent ink onto any surface. They've experimented with the right approach, and now they offer it directly to you. It's pretty cool how they make this. The glass is cut by a CNC device, and then they print your photo flipped left to right on the back of the glass so that when you look through the front, you see the right-facing image. The ink is baked on with ultraviolet light, and then a 2D laser cutter pops out the right size of foam core that's attached to the back. With all the automation involved, you might worry this goes straight in a box. But have no fears. A human being looks at every print to make sure it's perfect before it goes out of the shop. Sizes range from about 5 by 6 inches for $15, up to almost 22 by 29 inches for $125. You can even order custom sizes in almost any rectangular shape from 4 by 4 inches up to 32 by 40 inches. Remember what I said about all those computer-driven cutters? Now, I've got a deal for you. You can get 10% off your order by entering the coupon code TND at checkout. That's TND, standing for The New Disruptors, at checkout. Everyone gets free shipping for orders that total more than $100, not including custom-sized orders. Go to Fracture.me, upload your photos, pick the sizes, enter the coupon code TND for 10% off. And now back to the podcast. It's a very interesting thing because I think software has been uh, video games... Are one thing on Kickstarter or in any kind of crowdfunding situation, and sort of software that is very similar to software you can just go out and buy. I feel like it's been a hard category to crack. And, and you weren't ridiculously ambitious. You had a $10,000 goal. You raised uh, almost $12,500, but from 1,000 people. Were you concerned that you, you know, did you not want to rack up a failure here? I mean, that's, that, you've had two big successes. You're sort of known for that. Any risks in going in with a software project and wondering whether you'd, you'd hit the goal?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially because this was like a sports app and our typical customer had not typically been a sports <laughs> fan, right? So, or we didn't know. And so, yeah, we, we went in kind of, yeah, you know, not knowing. I mean, luckily we made a really fun product video and we had some like fun rewards. So that kind of helped us. But yeah, I mean, I think we would have, or we definitely would have released the app even if the campaign would have failed. It just would have been sad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, The software thing is very tricky, especially if it's iOS software, because there's strange intricacies with um, you know pre-selling a piece of software that then has to be sold through the app stores. It, it, how Apple doesn't did you, make it easy. Yeah, how did yeah. you do
0: that? How do you give the software... I know there's a promo code thing, but I thought you only get 100 per release. So how do you release iOS software... In the way that Apple demands to backers of a Kickstarter project, in the worst way you could possibly think <laughs> of doing it. So secret URLs, data. no. So uh,
2: you, um, we decided. There's a couple options, but the, the way we thought it was most fair was you get an email address from every backer, and then you go onto the I, like iTunes gifting mechanism, and you type in oh you know five or God. ten emails to the gifting thing and then it sends it because there's like a character limit in the gifting mechanism so it is extraordinarily manual and uh, it's prone to lots of
0: failure so wow. uh, and, and you you're know. paying apple so you're paying apple as if these are gifts even though you're the developer so you get 70% back of what you pay out that way Exactly yeah oh, that's even more, yeah Yeah
2: so you know obviously uh, the simple bracket did not pay for the de- development of it. And we didn't really expect it to. We, we kind of thought of Simple Bracket as something that we wanted to exist in the world. And we kind of think of ourselves, Dan and I think of ourselves as like a band, not really a business. <laughs> and so we just want to keep releasing albums and keep getting fans that like us. And so really we just thought of it as something that we wanted to exist. We thought would be awesome and that hopefully would attract, you know, uh, some people to us. So we kind of went in doing, It was somewhat of a lost cause uh, financially, but yeah, it is not...
0: Doing software through Kickstarter is not easy. <laughs> and, and, I mean, you're lucky, you know, there's uh, people like Jason Snell, the uh, editorial director at IDG of Macworld and PCworld and so forth, and John Gruber of Daring Fireball, the man behind the fireball effect, who are sports fans. And, I, you know, there are, there's this big, uh, Jason Snell wrote an article for us at the magazine about being a geeky sports fan and what kind of a weird position it puts you in. And he got a lot of response from it because there's a lot of people who are sort of not athletes, were never interested in playing sports, but are deeply involved in it and are really sort of techie geek. So I felt when this came out, I saw it on Daring Fireball and I thought, oh, this is the perfect cross of that exact audience. Right. I mean, I think
1: that's what we're going after. And it, it always surprises me when you look at, you know, Moneyball and, all, you know, all these things that Nate Silver is putting out that the uh, kind of geeky sports contingent isn't more vocal or Obvious, but I, I know it's out there. And We're we worried about being
0: beaten up. I think, is right. so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Uh, but so yeah, it's. I feel like there there should be more things that cater to that crowd in the sports world versus these kind of like overly kind of masculine, robotic kind of like visual treatments that you see in a lot of these. Sports apps or television programming um,
0: it 's funny I talked about that with marco armin on, on a on a previous podcast about uh, his, or actually it maybe a future podcast. We split his into two parts so i 'm not sure <laughs> not sure listeners you may have heard this already or it 'll be in the future i 'll mention it in the show notes He uh, and two of his buddies, uh, uh, Casey Liss and uh, John Syracusa, did a podcast called Neutral about cars. They did about twelve episodes, but the whole thing was. Car shows are – like all the podcasts, TV shows, magazines are all like, car, muscle, power, horsepower. And they're like, we don't care about that stuff. We care about the technology and the car and the experience. So they called it neutral to try to appeal <laughs> to that geek, that geeky area. Yeah, that's perfect. And that's what simple bracket is sort of the same thing. I, so this cover comes back to your notion of you don't have employees. There's a two of you. You outsource everything. You chose to do this project. We often talk on this podcast about the connection between doing something you love and the commerce. And in the XOXO conference at which you guys spoke uh, last October, and in the show notes I'll put a link to your uh, the video of that about you know, about Glyph and how you develop your company, uh, that show was I think very deeply involved in the like how do we pursue things we love to do and yet – make some kind or part of a living from it and maybe we don't always make the best return but we're not divorced entirely from commerce simple bracket to me seems like a great expression of that is you're only responsible to yourselves or each other in terms of the business for your time when it's an application the development cost is all sweat equity there's very little hard cost involved in this at all and and you guys chose to do this do you feel it was worthwhile in that framework that like did it fulfill you personally did it wind up on the app store selling enough to make it you know so you made more made enough per hour that it it felt reasonable
2: yeah uh yeah i mean we both i think in the very beginning of the kickstarter campaign we were are a little bit crestfallen just because we had no idea mm. what the response was going to be, but once the app was out there and people were using it, yeah, we got a lot of great feedback, and we, uh, I think it kind of did what we wanted it to do. And it's you know it's amazing because we were like top forty in the paid in the iTunes Store for like several weeks, and you still end up not making tons of revenue from yeah. that. Dep- you know, you people, it's kind of crazy. But um,
0: <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it did what we wanted it to do. Well, the big thing is in-app upgrades, isn't it? The top forty paid apps may not actually make very much money, but the free apps with in-app upgrades could yes. be vastly uh, more. But I still think I'm,
2: I'm quite skeptical still of all that stuff.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, you know, we. It's funny, Marco and I were talking about that in that other podcast as well. Is it's really hard to know because unless you know, there's I don't know, hundreds of thousands of developers now. There's a million apps or something or eight hundred thousand apps, and we know that of 800,000 apps, maybe 798,000 are probably don't even barely cover the value of time people put into it. So there's some very, very small number that are really successful. And Apple just said, uh, it paid out $9 billion to developers so far. So we know money's getting paid out, but what is the power law curve there?
2: Yeah, I don't, I mean, it's definitely steep. I mean, we released the sales numbers of our, of frameographer in the book and, you know, it's definitely the typical story where you know you release and you make all of your money in the first week like literally like 95 mm-hmm. percent of your money in the first week and so it is really tough out there i mean if dan and i didn't have kind of revenue coming in from the hardware side of our business we would not have a company you know with just making
0: software so because yeah, you never know where the, you don't know where lightning's gonna strike. You can't predict yeah. it and you don't know. And, and even when, I mean, this is actually a great contrast, right? Is the glyph got a great boost from uh, Daring Fireball and, and you released some stats on your blog about how, where the sources of people came from, because Kickstarter can help you with that, who then went on to buy products uh, for the Glyph. So you knew, like, the fireball effect and some other sites, Gizmodo, I think, and some others that had an effect. With Simple Bracket, John Gruber promoted that as well. You had a lot of support from all the all the geek sports fans out there, but lightning didn't strike in the same way. It's, there, there's no way you don't... I mean, I know you don't have a formula for this, but is there any way you can see in which you can have any way to predict what a software package will do, even within some range no, no. <laughs>
2: not that I not that I know of. I how mean, do
0: you commit to doing it then? I mean, that's that leap of faith. Where I mean, this is one example, but it, you know how how do you jump in and make that decision for yourselves or, or together since you're running a company? Say we're going to devote a thousand hours or two thousand hours of our own time to this thing. We only have to compensate ourselves out of this. What's the thing that pushes you over to say this is worth it? I mean, I think the This sounds cheesy, but, like, the working
1: on it has to be its own reward in some ways. So, like, working on Simple Bracket was really fun. Like, it was fun to solve that challenge of, you know, fitting a 64-team bracket onto a tiny (laughs) iPhone screen. So, like, these are things we love to do. So, during the entire development of Simple Bracket, we were always saying, like, man, is this thing going to make any money? But we, <laughs> we kept working on it because it was fun. So I think that's kind of the key. And so, you know, likewise with the glyph, like that was really fun to work on. And we did that on the side while keeping our full-time job. So there really wasn't any dramatic risk that had to take place for these things uh, to happen. Well,
0: oh, you've ratcheted yourself up. You've got a diversified set of products now, your hardware and software. You've got a few different products of each kind. You're working on stuff actively. So you've distributed your risk a bit in terms of anything you do.
1: Right. So that was the nice thing about Symbol Bracket is we had these other products to support the development of that. So uh, if it was you know, a complete failure – we wouldn't have to go out of business, basically.
0: But you've got a product now that can be an evergreen, right? You next year, you've learned from this. If you want to revise this, this doesn't take two thousand hours. This takes fifty hours. You, you know, got iOS seven or whatever's out. You have to revise it and go through the whole process and whatever. But is this something? Will you release it again in a in a new form next year? Do you think?
1: That is our thinking. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. As it stands right now, we are planning to to release it again. Because
0: that's the leverage. If you could do this, if every year for the next 10 years you produce it and you can make – and you get returning customers who will pay the buck uh, for it. I should point out by – your rewards were hilarious because the $10 reward for it uh, it was a field notes, right? So you got a field notes book and the app and I'm like it's such a perfect storm of like Kickstarter and American-made things and (laughs) And Jim Kudal has been on the podcast. Like it's just – that's, and you know, and John Gruber's been on the podcast. So it's like this interesting community of people, all sort of supporting and, and involved in each other's products. But but anyway, the the evergreen thing is something you love in like uh, publishing. There used to be a time when, in computer books, if you were lucky, there was a book you'd revise every year or every you know year and a half to two years, like the Mac Bible or something like that. And that's kind of gone away. But could this? Do you think this might be an evergreen for you? Was there enough interest to say, eh, maybe this will be something we do work on every year and keep up to date? Well,
1: that's definitely something that's appealing to me. And kind of a thought I had during the process was just like, wait a second, this could maybe become our first kind of recurring revenue stream. All of our other products, you buy it once and then you're kind of done. You don't have to ever talk to us again as long as, you know, the product, uh, you're still using it. So that was one thing that appealed to us is, you know, the potential to have kind of a recurring revenue every year.
0: It's working for Major League Baseball with their apps. They have uh, (laughs) not not that we could. We only aspire to be that. With uh, with, uh, I'd like to aspire with advanced written permission to be Major League Baseball. Uh, (laughs) But so I think you know this is. I feel like you guys have like wrapped up. (laughs) You've got like a circle we draw around in the last three years. Like so many different trends, so many different kinds of things: three D printing and crowdfunding, software iOS development, uh, and and even the pitfalls of manufacture and and um, just how to manage these processes. You've done so many different things. And of course, I'm sure you have many things in the works. What is your direction in the future? What do you want to do more of the same? Or is this like, this is a starting point, And now there are even more ways you want to branch out from here?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I, Dan and I are curious, uh, a, a, a very curious individuals. And so, you know, part of the reason why we wrote that book also was just because we wanted to see what writing a book was like. And mm-hmm. so. I think we'll continue to try new stuff out as long as we can if, you know, we see something that really has a need there. Uh, you know, I think the only two things we haven't really done is like a video game and a movie. Ooh. Uh, and which, you know, do we don't it, have any plans do to do. Oh, come on. Surely, <laughs> but, uh...
0: now that, I've, now that we, now you've said it, now you're going to do it. Watch. <laughs> it. Watch out. You know what's funny, though? This is the Kickstarter thing is interesting to me. And Indiegogo and and even people running, uh, you know, quasi-crowdfunding or, or actual crowdfunding, their own site is people will stretch in ways they didn't. It didn't before. The Linotype, um, the movie, I think is a great example is an early and multiple Kickstarter thing. The fellows, most of the people who made that movie had never really made a movie before. And they pulled it together, made a great film, very well produced. The indie game folks who were at XOXO and uh, were early guests on this podcast, they had made commercial videos before and made short stuff. They made a feature length film. It seems like crowdfunding maybe gives you the confidence to stretch in a way that you wouldn't before like you did with Cliff or, or even with, with uh, uh, the Bracket software.
2: Yeah, and I would say not even, not even it's just confidence, but it's also an audience. I mean, you know, if Dan and I had a Kickstarter campaign for a movie of some sort, and then we had, you know, like a couple thousand backers... I think the motivation inherent in that is just so incredibly valuable. I mean, I know we experienced that with the Cosmonaut where, you know, there were times uh, because we had quite a few problems and there were times where we probably would have given up on the product had we not had the uh, Kickstarter backers who had already promised stuff to. And so I think, you know, not only the confidence to make the movie, to make a movie, but just having those people there like cheering you on and giving you motivation. That's like another huge, huge part.
0: It's been interesting watching the development of Twitter, um, not from their business model standpoint, but the <laughs> model of people who develop, um, you know, who get uh, large followings or even modest followings. So you know, thousands of people, up to tens or hundreds of thousands of people who formerly worked kind of in the in quiet, and how I see that crowdfunding effect happen there too, where people have trouble, they tweet something, and they get. Five hundred tweets of response or or even ten, but they 're the right ten where someone 's like god you 're not know, really help me i 'm hitting here in my basement office, my rented space, you know wherever they 're at, and working on their own, and they suddenly get that boost of Oh my God, other people actually care and appreciate what I do' There was no mechanism for that except people writing letters in the past and people used to maybe write more letters. But this kind of immediacy of response, does, does that uh, – I mean you haven't been buoyed up as much that on Twitter. But it seems like uh, – is this something you want to seek out more of that you like? Not necessarily the crowd shaping what you do in, in focus groups but finding out what people love and helping produce more things that they love. That's, that's a
1: good question. I mean the way we operate – currently is pretty insular and self-interested in some way where we just find problems that we have in our own lives and make the assumption that these are shared problems so you know with the glyph it was man this is a great camera i really want to mount this thing to a tripod there's no elegant way to do that you know let's solve that problem so it wasn't about research of you know, trying to find a problem, it was experiencing it ourselves and then trying to solve it. So, I mean, we personally think that leads to good design because you're so close to the problem that you know when it's been solved in a way that's satisfactory. But that's not to say we're against these other kind of more outreach methodologies. We just haven't really done that yet.
0: It's interesting, though, because I think there's so much positivity about what you guys have done, and it used to be very hard, I think, to tap into that in any way. And crowdfunding is one, Twitter is one, and just people even blogging, writing reviews. Um, We found this with the magazine that's been fascinating is the writers for the magazine, many of them have written – some are first-time writers who have never written in kind of a broad medium before, and others have written for major publications. The uniform response is – I've never had as many people tell me they like something I've done before as with this. And there's something new to me that's happened that goes beyond like the comments on websites, which are often devolve into horror, right? Is <laughs> that yeah. there's something about mechanisms that exist now that let people who have positive opinions and Positive support reach people more directly, and I and you've experienced with crowdfunding. But I I love the idea that maybe uh, the love that's out there, the support, the morale building, the positive part of it, maybe that's uh, maybe it's evolving. Maybe we're getting to a point where there's more of that—not Pollyanna-ish, but genuine respect, support, and admiration. I don't know. Maybe I'm too optimistic.
2: No, I I would agree with you. I mean, just you know, being able to tweet like, "Hey, we made this thing." And then, or hey, we're working on this thing and getting people, you know, responding to that in any way is just like, like you said, super encouraging. And I think the more that you show behind the curtain, like how something is made or like, you know, how you approached it, the more opportunity there is for other humans to say, hey, look, these humans are making something. Let's like, you know see what they're doing or like give them encouragement. So I think just like the whole humanizing of, you know, companies and our design process and Twitter, I mean, that's, you know, that's a, a huge thing for us.
0: Well, Tom and Dan, I'll be looking forward to your video game movie coming out soon <laughs> through a crowdfunded <laughs> Twitter backed project. And, and thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to talk about all this. I think it's great what you guys are doing and I'm looking forward to your next endeavor. Thanks for Thanks for having us. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email new disruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time.